Good morning. Our scripture text today comes to us from 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things built up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean, the other's conscience, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. The word of the Lord. Once again, holy God, we place our lives in front of your open word, asking that your spirit will use it to transform us, to free us, to call us to the life of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Desire. We all have it, we confront it every day, and we are created with it. So it is striking that the churches and the synagogues and temples and mosques are not known for their encouragement of desire. In fact, in spite of their many differences, it's striking that one of the things the great religions all have in common is anxiety about desire. They've seen how much trouble it can cause. And so they're tempted to regulate the passion out of life with laws and obligations and duties. It's an old religious agenda and it drove the Apostle Paul crazy. In his day, people offered animal sacrifices in pagan worship. And the meat from the sacrifice was then later sold in the market. And the leaders of the church in Corinth were forbidding Christians from eating any of this meat that had once been on a pagan altar. But the Apostle Paul doesn't really care about the religious history of a piece of meat. So he says, eat whatever you want, as long as you do it with thankfulness. For the earth and all of its fullness are the Lord's. So whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do everything for the glory of God. His point is that Whatever it is that you are desiring was created by God, and therefore it is 
blessed. But, but, precisely because it is blessed by God, that means you can't have everything you desire. You cannot have your neighbor's blessing. You can't even covet it. The opening pages of the Bible make it clear that sin entered the world out of desire for forbidden fruit. Or to again use the Apostle Paul's word, whatever you should be doing, you should be doing for the glory of God. And it is so easy to profane the glory of God when we reach beyond our created limits. So maybe the religions of the world are wise in teaching us how to harness desire. Got it? Got it? But even though desire has to be governed, we have to remember it is still created by God. And all that God created has been called good. We are born crying out with the desire for the breath of life. And we then spend our days desiring more breath, more food, more water, more love, more healing. We desire more meaning and purpose to life. No great human achievement was ever accomplished apart from desire. No music was written, no painting was created, no sonnet was ever penned, no injustice was ever overcome, certainly no one ever fell in love without desire. But even these good and holy desires are hard to satisfy. In his book, The Awakened Heart, Gerald May writes, there is a great desire in all of us, in the deep center of our life that we call the heart. We are born with it, it is never satisfied, it never dies. We are often not aware of it, but it is always awake. May then goes on to describe that it doesn't matter how far you try to run from desire, how much you try to hide it in the ordinary, in the routine, no matter how much you try to numb it with addictions, the desire is always awake because it was put there by God. But desire is not the only thing we find in the heart. There is also discontent. They live actually pretty close to each other. And not always, but sometimes, desire and discontent are in cahoots. We see this often in relationships. It begins in the first stage with fantasy, when we say, Surely, this is the person of my dreams. Then pretty quickly, we move to the second stage where we say, 
This is almost the person of my dreams. I just have to make a few adjustments. Then we slide into the third stage when we say, this is going to be harder than I thought. And the exact same thing happens in community, where we spend most of the time running back and forth between discontent and desire. You cannot be in any authentic community without experiencing desire and discontent. But this is not necessarily a bad thing. G.K. Chesterton wrote about a divine discontent, which reminds us at the end of every great achievement, after grasping of every great desire, that we have once again come to the wrong star. He says this is what is so splendid and strange about human beings, that we find our great happiness when we discover that we don't belong, that we don't fit, because we come from someplace else. At the bottom of all desire, we discover this yearning for home, the someplace else where we belong. And we remember that the great yearning, the yearning that pierces through all others, is the desire for the God who desires us. This is why we come to worship. We gather together, even online, carrying our great achievements and our failures. We carry our moments of faithfulness and our sins. We carry our love and our hurts. We carry our justice and our injustice. We carry our community's aspirations and its limitations. And we confess, along with Pascal, that the great infinite abyss within us can only be filled by the infinite. we remember. If you've ever gone to the symphony, you know that before the performance begins, all of the instrumentalists are on the stage pretty much doing their own thing. They are tuning their instruments, they're playing very different measures of music as they practice them. But to those in the audience, this sounds like a strange cacophony of chaos up there. It makes me wonder if this is not what our disharmonious desires sound like to heaven. But then the concert master stands up and plays a note, typically concert A. It's played in a way that is slow and piercing while all of the other instrumentalists join in. Now the orchestra is tuned up, focused, on pitch, and ready to make great music. We come to worship because we don't want to spend all of life just tuning up. 
We want our fleeting years to contribute to something that is beautiful and artistic. But you have got to get the desire focused. And so we come back in worship to the A note. We tune the desire for God once again. And then we discover that all the other notes about relationships and community and school and work and dreams, they all come together in a symphony that does indeed give glory to God and allows us to enjoy God and all of these other things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.